Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast, where you're going to find news that you won't find anywhere else, and where you're going to hear from a guy who wants to unite the country, who wants to show as much love as humanly possible, and who wants to motivate and make you a little bit wiser with each and every episode. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas, and as a guy who worries a lot about our current media situation, as well as the state of our country, I decided it was time to speak out. I can no longer remain silent while our country grows further and further apart. I absolutely love America, and I care a lot about our military, where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon. And I know that as Americans, we are each and every one subjected to loads of news and opinion that upsets us, divides us, and causes us to hate those on the other side. I'm not that way, and it's time to provide the balanced counter to that division. We need a calm and solid media voice who doesn't work to divide and who doesn't use scare tactics or extreme, minuscule examples to work up their audience. Every day and every night, on a daily, almost hourly basis, this country hears too many distortions, exaggerations, and selective examples designed to capture attention and rile up the audience. No more. No more of that. It's time for some steady, level-headed facts. And it's time we do our smaller part, each and every one of us, to pull our country together. After all, a house divided cannot stand. And I believe that we can best reunite and reunify this country by showing more love and cooperation. I don't claim to have all the answers. But I know that our democracy doesn't work without informed voters. And I also know we need to grow closer together and show more patience and kindness to each other. If we want to pass on a better future for our kids, then we need to heal our country. And I think we can do this. Guys, we can absolutely do this. Each of us can be more patient, more kind, and more optimistic. We can talk about politics less, and we can remember how awesome our country is. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this. Always. From the poorest ghetto to the richest suburb. From the low ground in Florida to the towering peaks out west. America is a wonderful country that we were all very fortunate to be born in. Our country is filled with amazing, hardworking people who would give you the shirts off their backs. And if you think about it, every single natural disaster has proven that our people, of every race and income bracket, both the rich and the poor, our people will always rally and help one another in times of need. Don't believe the hyperventilating people you see on TV. Don't believe the predictions that our country's best days are behind us. This is not true. It's simply not true. We have seen darker days. We have overcome far worse. We need to be of good cheer, and we need to stop living in fear and despair. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the January 26th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. In this episode, we will be discussing several topics, which I hope will interest you, and I hope you, you know, haven't seen them in the news yet, and I think there's a chance you have not seen all of them. The first item will be about the news that Ukraine is finally getting tanks, both Abrams from America and Leopards from Germany, as well as we'll talk about the cumulative total that will likely end up being um, provided to Ukraine in regards to if you counted all the European uh, countries put together. So I'll just barely touch on that. Not a whole lot. I know, I think most of you have heard the news. From there, we'll go into a reminder about why now is not the time for Ukraine to begin peace talks. 
which again has popped up in the news. Uh, we'll talk about why I think Ukraine is getting pushed back some in the eastern part of the country, um, in the Donbass region. You may or may not have heard just a little bit about that, depending on how active you are on the socials. Um, we'll also talk about China and how their aggressive actions are turning even the uh, mostly peaceful and certainly massive country of India against them. Uh, we'll do an update on the revolution happening in Iran, how it's not stopping, what that means for the country. We'll also cover two items in tech news and how that's affecting modern warfare. And both of those items involve drones, and I think you're going to find that pretty interesting. And then finally, we'll cover plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end. And so, I think it'll be a good episode. A few things real quick new um i guess logistics or news wise for about the show uh or maybe one thing about the show and maybe one thing about me um so first as a kind of a improvement to the show i had talked about how a listener had reached out and said stan you know could we just get the motivation and wisdom section in its own format and I couldn't really figure out a way to do that without sending two emails or setting up an entirely new podcast, which I thought about. And it's still kind of possibly an option in the future, but it's a lot of work. I'm trying to finish the fifth Nick Woods book, and I'm obviously dealing with a lot um, with um, the health of my mother right now. And so I really don't have time to do those things. And I stumbled across a possible option, or at least an improvement. And so what you should see, if this works like it's supposed to, or like my perfect plans uh, have in mind, you will see timestamps at the top of the source notes above everything else on when each section begins so that you can skip to any of them. If you want to go to the drones, I'll have, you know, it'll be minute, whatever it is, 44 or whatever. Uh, I've recorded some of this in advance so i pieced them together and so unfortunately i couldn't figure out a way at the very beginning of the show to be like go to minute 34 or whatever because as i record the intro that might vary by one minute or two minutes or three minutes who knows and then so depending on how long the intro is that would mess up all the numbers so the only way i can do it is create the entire show produce it upload it and then when i've added in the intro I will know precisely when the motivation and wisdom section starts. And so I'll have that when you get this email, if this works, it will say minute, whatever, 48, 54. I'm not sure what that number will be, depending on how much I blab right now. But I'm thinking that'll be a nice little improvement. And then that way, if you want to share just the motivation and wisdom portion with a friend who's either struggling or who needs to be, you know, a little, little motivation in their life, you can say, hey, here's the link. Go to minute, whatever it is, 54 and 32 seconds. That's the best part of the show anyway, blah, 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 blah. Boom, send it. So I think that's a little little bit of an improvement. And, um, you know, we try to constantly improve. Um, I think the pronunciation of it is kaizen. And that just is a Japanese term that is the search for constant improvement, continuous improvement, or change for the better, depending on which translation you look at. And that is something the Japanese have kind of mastered. And if you really want to get into the weeds back in the 60s, a lot of U.S. manufacturers um, 
went to Japan to learn how to improve the manufacturing process and learn about Kaizen. And I read an entire book about this about 10 years ago, and I can't remember the guy. I think it's Peter Drucker. I should have researched that. Um, But I actually think that is his name, and I'm really impressed if it is because I did that off the top of my head. But there are entire books on this, and I've always tried to follow it in my life since reading that book. And so... I know the podcast is better than it was three months ago. I know it's way better than it was six months ago. And I think with this small timestamp thing, it just got better again. And so that totally, completely makes my day. All right, that was the first thing. Let's talk about one other thing as relatively briefly. But I'm not going to rush because I figure if you're listening to this thing, you like Stan and you like the show. And you now have timestamps if this works well and you can skip this part. So... I'm going to talk for a second. Um, what I'm going to talk about. So, you know, as everyone knows, I've been I've been going through the real stuff in life of late with uh, everything going on with my mom. And there's um, anytime you're dealing with family, there's just there's a lot. I don't think I have to tell anyone that I'm not getting into any specifics or anything. But stepping back a second an interesting thing happened in the life of Stan. And the days and weeks run together a bit, but about a month or so, or six weeks, or something like that, I'm not sure, maybe two months, before I got the news about my mother, um, I kind of restarted my faith journey. I have a long and torturous uh, Christian background, and I may or may not go into for just a second. I'm going to see how I feel. But interestingly, though, before any of this happened with my mother, I had felt sort of an emptiness like often happens when we're not where we probably should be. And um, I'm going to try not to get to religion too much. But interestingly, I had just been wanting to try to get back into a church situation. I've had... I guess my complications with religion are more about the church than they are the about religion. And um, anyway, I, I kind of shared a lot of this on Twitter because, you know, last night um, after a visit with my mom, it was one of those nights where I couldn't sleep well. So from about, I don't remember, 3.30 on, I pretty much didn't sleep. And I was kind of trapped in the bed. I didn't want to get up because if I had gotten up and gone to a computer, which I kind of wanted to do, I knew it would have uh, have awoken my beautiful wife, and I did not want to do that. And so I've put her through enough in the past few months. So I sat there and got on Twitter. I looked around. I did all the normal things. I tried repeating Bible verses, blah, blah, blah. And I just couldn't. I was just wrestling with some things. And then finally I was like, you know what? I'm just going to share some of my story. And so I did. And I did it on Twitter because I know that on Twitter you can delete it. And I know I knew if I'd written it as a blog post, I'd probably delete it. But the great thing with Twitter is it's short little bits, short little steps, and you just kind of start down a path. And then you just kind of, I don't know if bare your soul is the right word, but you just let it go. And so I just kind of let it go. And it felt good to let it go. I ain't going to lie. And so what did I let go? Um... So I talked a bit about how, going back to my childhood, you know, I'm the son of a deacon, and, um, man, how do you even begin this story? Raised in church from the very beginning, and always had huge, immense faith. 
But the church I went to was kind of one of those strict, almost fundamentalist, I guess, but, you know, very old-fashioned churches. And the way that that church worked is you get saved, is the term. And so with this church, you have to know when you're lost, and you have to know when you're saved, and you give what's called a testimony, and then you get baptized. It's pretty simple in concept. But in my case, I never really felt lost, and there were about three or four times that I felt saved, but I can never distinguish which one, which, by the way, the church was kind of set up, that wasn't good enough. So, basically, you got the son of a deacon who's kind of trapped in a situation where I, I was not saved by the church standards, and yet I was saved by my standards, and yet I wasn't baptized, and so lots of people were worried about me, and so... Many of them, out of concern, would try to um, just get me to go get saved. And I would not do it, because even though that would have been the easiest thing in the world, um, for whatever reason, I had so much reverence and fear and respect for God, all of those things together. I had this view that if I had faked getting saved, basically gone through the process again to get people to quit messing with me, and to make people happy, I had this literal fear that I would be struck by lightning. Like, I knew I was saved, and that to do so would be to make a mockery of everything I believed. And so I, I would stand up to folks, and I would not do it, because I did not feel that I needed to be saved. I was saved. I just could not, by their standards, describe it in a way, or defend myself in a way. So I dealt with a lot of... Um, I think people meant well, but it was a church that some of the folks could be a little judgmental, and I guess that may be any church. But it was certainly for me anyway not the most healthy of situations, especially for a young man who wanted to please his dad more than anything in the world. And um, so I do have a complicated, torturous Christian background, and it was definitely fair to say that wasn't very healthy for me. I couldn't wait to leave for the military at 17. That felt like the easiest way to get out of something that wasn't great for me. Even though the entire time I was insanely religious, and I don't in a weird way regret any of this. I have strong foundations. It's just, um, I think the devil did a great job of complicating some things and, and trying his best to destroy some things. So uh, left for the Marine Corps and have kind of complicated church history since then. I was a member of a Methodist church, and I've been in a non-denominational church, and I've been in and out, because we all know that churches can be amazing, and churches can be, well, churches. So, but I've been out of it for a few years, and um, I'm just saying all this because it's interesting how God's timing is incredible sometimes, because rebuilding this faith I have in this foundation the past few months as I have really dove in. And it's completely, it's not like this is constant prayers for a miracle or, you know, a divine intervention just for my mom. It's so much deeper than that. And it, in many ways, has nothing to do with that. I was already restarted this journey and we had gone to, we've now gone to three different churches. I think we found one and, um, the Bible, reading, the all the things I do, I don't have to do anything. And so it's been intense, it's been amazing, and uh, it has given me a lot of strength. So I think I just say all of that because just God's timing sometimes is so 
amazing and incredible because I think if I had not restarted that journey, what might have happened? Maybe I would have been angry at God. Maybe I would have been pushed away. Maybe I would have been driven into it out of like a desperation or something. But then maybe five years from now or something, I would have thought, uh, I wasn't seeking it. I was doing it out of, you know, complete despair or something. But it has been good that we started the church search process while we were not under duress. And it's also been nice that a lot of the things that I had built up in my mind about how churches are, and let's be frank, many churches are that way, um, that there are some good ones out there. And so, any rate, I share all of that because, uh, one, it's my show and I wanted to, and two, I've been going through some stuff and people every now and then reach out and ask for things well. And I've, you know, I've recently started listening to a podcast where a guy's just insanely open and honest, and he's actually a pastor, but he will talk about, you know, struggles he's had with his wife, you know, a time they nearly split, his anger at God sometimes, just various things. And it is so genuine and real that I have just flown through episode after episode after episode. He's got about three years of them um, uploaded. And I'm just like, man, like, it's... The dude's the real deal. Like, just a... You're just like, man, he's like a human, normal guy. And, um... I don't know. So I share all of that because... It just dawns on me that I think... I just go back to authenticity. That we want people to be authentic. And I'm not going to change who I am or try to be a certain way to try to, you know, reach a certain point or something. But also, I think about that... I know the things, and there were a few little things, a few little, almost like breadcrumbs on this trail that led me to where I am now in the search before I got the news. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to say this, and if it helps lead one person, then so be it. I don't have a huge audience, but you should get to know me, and maybe it helps someone. So the ma- the great thing is, is, man, like I have become more centered more calm. I watch my words better. I tr- I think I, I think I'm just becoming a better person. So as long as I never become judgmental, that is my number one super whatever goal. And I also need to figure out what to call myself because I still struggle calling myself a Christian because unfortunately that term has just been run through the mud by people who probably meant well, but These are people that know the book, and they know the rules, and they know all of that, and they don't live the life, do they? It's like they they don't get it. They don't, they don't, man, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but I know you all know who I'm talking about, because we all have those people in our lives, do we not? All right. I appreciate your patience while I shared that, or maybe some of you just jumped to the timestamp and didn't listen, and that's totally okay as well. Uh, and I also promise that this is not going to become a religious broadcast or any of that, because if there's one thing I learned in my early days of being, I guess the right word is stuck in a church. I kind of wanted to be in church, but I didn't want to maybe be forced to go and deal with what I had to deal with. But if there's one thing I know is pushing religion is not how 
it's done. But if you have run from it for a bit and feeling a little empty or whatnot, maybe kick a tire or two, maybe knock some dust off the book or whatever it is, maybe listen to a podcast or two. Might just make life a little better for you. It has certainly, I don't think I would have made it through these past few months without the, um, you know, side by side journey I've been going down. So enough on all that. Again, I really appreciate your all's patience and you are welcome to send me emails and say, just shut up about that stuff and cover the news. I would completely understand that. And it would be a great chance for me to test my new newly found or newly improved patience. But I do think that you will see in the coming weeks, months, etc., a more centered and less outspoken person because I am I was already a pretty calm, level-headed guy. And now I look back at even some of the things I've used to say and yeah, I just don't think that I want to be an even better guy. So, there you go. Let's get to item one in the news. I am pretty sure most of you have seen the news that Ukraine is finally getting tanks to push back the Russians with. It did break through and make most of the mainstream media channels. Uh, to make it happen, the U.S. decided to send 30 Abrams, cha- uh, Abrams tanks. As a reminder, Great Britain had already said they were going to send 14 Challenger 2s. Germany has said they'll send 14 Leopards. Um, looks like Poland's going to send 14 leopards. The Netherlands is going to send 18 of them. Norway's going to send 8 of them. And so if you start to add that up, as an analyst did, that's 96 tanks going initially and not listed yet are Finland, Spain, Canada, Portugal, and Denmark, as well as France. And so the analyst was doing some guesstimates, and they're thinking about 130 to 140 tanks in the first batch. I have a link to that in the source notes. All of this is incredibly good news, but I did want to make one comment about it because it frustrated me. Almost immediately after the news was announced, uh, General Barry McCaffrey, a man I respect, by the way, who has just an unbelievably long list of a military record far outside mine, far higher rank, far longer service, far better schooled in the verse of strategy, etc. But General McCaffrey has become kind of like Alexander Vindman, and they're just huge cheerleaders for getting stuff to Ukraine now so that Ukraine can defend itself, and I get all of that. I totally get it. I actually agree with basically. However, we deal in a political environment. And so, General Barry McCaffrey, I saw this. This is one of those where I did not do, this is not a you know practice what you preach thing. But I did see scrolling through Twitter that someone had put up a two or three minute soundbite segment of his, which I didn't save and I don't have the link, but I'm sure you can find it out there. Where he said on one of the news stations that this wasn't enough, that it was a drop in the bucket, and that they needed 300 tanks, and that we needed to get serious. Hmm. Interesting. So, even as someone as pro-Ukraine, you know, I'm as pro-Ukraine as they come, but unfortunately, and I get this way, I used to follow Alexander Vindman on Twitter. I think I still do. Um, Remarkable person. But you 
cannot constantly ask slash demand slash insist on more without people finally getting tired of it and saying, enough, no, we're done, enough. And I say this because we're already seeing this in Congress with some of the Republicans that have been elected or who have been there but are now in the majority. And so we took something that was great news. As I said, Ukraine's going to get about 130 to 140 tanks. They're different types. There's Leopards, there's Challengers, there's Abrams. That's going to create logistical issues. We've talked about that in previous episodes. But still, it's 140 tanks or so. It's huge news for Ukraine. Absolutely huge news. And I'll go into just a bit um, on another item about what they may or may not do with it. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. But we take something that's huge news, and then we just stomp on it by having analysts... And they may be right. Maybe 300 are needed. But the moment the news breaks, and this is huge news that we've been moving toward for two plus months, you have analysts jumping in on it and saying, no, that's not enough. Need need double, at least. And we need F-16s. Need them yesterday. Should have been having them train last six, nine months, a year. And I kind of agree with that stuff. But I'm just saying that we need to be wary Because from a political perspective, we are going to absolutely wear out our patience with those who are on the fence or already opposed to it in the beginning. And when you don't give people credit, and I won't name various politicians, but when you don't give people credit for doing good things and say that's not enough, at some point you start to become someone who's... I don't want to use the term radical, but that's basically what you are. You you become an evangelist, a radical, a whether it's someone on the left or the right. We all know those people, and those people don't get good results long term. They sometimes change the conversation. They certainly um, alienate folks, but I just say all of that because I feel like this is great news. I don't want to totally say... I don't even have a right to be in the conversation with General Barry McCaffrey. But 130 to 140 tanks, I know it's a long front. It's a wide front. But that's a lot of tanks. And that is a serious punch. I've seen unbelievable amounts of video of the current fighting. It's small-scale unit stuff. And you put even half or a quarter of those together in a punch and you've got a decent sized punch and you're going to punch an ar- punch a hole through the Russian lines. That, that's bare minimum reality. The Russians can't stop 25 to 30 modern NATO tanks anywhere. Not even close. Not with their conscripts. Not with their limited air power. The Ukrainians are going to be able to punch through. This is great news. And so I just want to say... If, and if you're one of those people that say, we need 300 and we need this and this. Like, yes, I know. We, I agree. We, we do need that stuff. But let's, let's, let's play the long game. Let's, let's be realistic, folks. We literally, in a week or two, managed to push Germany into agreeing to send leopards. And they have been resisting that for months and months and months. So let's celebrate the small steps that are being made. I know this isn't ideal. I know there are Ukrainians dying. I know the war is horrible. I know all of those things. I know them as well as probably most people out there. I've followed this. I've lost sleep over this. But 
the long game, people. The long game. And this is about politics. And politics, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, with the will of the people, you can do anything without it. You can't do anything. So there's no point in sending 300 tanks this month if three months from now there's 15 congressional investigations and we stop all funding and then we've got cong congressional parts of a certain side from Congress saying, don't even send ammo, don't send maintenance, don't send anything. Well, what did we achieve then? We sent 300 tanks fast. We lost all public support, and we hurt Ukraine in the long term. This is unfortunately a political thing. And you can fault President Biden for not doing things faster. We've been worried about Russian escalation, etc., etc. We've covered all these things, but let's celebrate the victories. Let's celebrate the good news. And this was great news for Ukraine. And I can't wait until the tanks get there and they start to help the Ukrainian people and now we can start to push for a little more, but let's not diminish what happened, because what happened is huge. Alright, that's my thoughts on that topic. Let's move now briefly to Stan's version on why it is not a good time for Ukraine to begin peace talks, which again has popped up in the news. It never seems to fail. This time it was a, one of the leaders in the United Kingdom, and I don't know if they just say these things because it's on paper the right things to say, I'm not sure, but then every time it does get said, everyone has to respond to it, everyone starts the same arguments and says, well, I mean, are you not in favor of peace? And it's, just, it's like pulling your hair out. But on that note, I came across something that I thought was funny, it was a great photo and it's a photo of a protester holding up a sign that they hand wrote. And it's just two sentences. And it says, if Russia stops fighting, there will be no war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there will be no more Ukraine with three exclamation points. And I thought, wow, that just so precisely explains the, the entire situation. Again, if Russia stops fighting, there will be no war. It's so obvious, is it not? Ukraine didn't invade Russia. Russia's this massive bully. They're, um, ten, they're so much bigger than Ukraine. All they got to do is pack up their stuff and leave. They don't have to do mobilizations. They don't have to continue this ugly, nasty war. If Russia stops fighting, there will be no war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there will be no more Ukraine. So, we've talked also in the past about... That both sides have to want to do it. It's something the West can't impose. The Ukrainian people, by overwhelming majorities, 90 plus percent, want to reclaim the entire part of all land seized by Russia. You can see this in poll after poll. You can see this by the number of people who've stayed in horrendous conditions where power is no guarantee, where water is no guarantee, even in places like Kiev. There are power outages, there are water shortages, there are constant attacks by drones, there are large-scale missile attacks, and people have chosen to remain. They have chosen not to flee to Poland and other parts of Europe because they believe in Ukraine, they believe in their president, they believe in their armed forces, and they want to drive the Russians out. And you have to understand, they have a deep-seated anger toward Russia. They remember the, the former president that was a Russian ally who killed innocent civilians, who tried to have an authoritarian government. They know the price of how hard it is to get a democracy, which they 
managed to do through massive protest and through blood that was shed. They also know that the Russians have invaded three times. We talk about that a lot. They first invaded in 2014. So the Ukrainian people do not want peace by having to give up Ukraine because they know if they buy short-term peace that Russia will evade again in a year. They will restockpile. The Russians can't be trusted. The Ukrainians do not trust them. And on that point, there's no need to beat a dead horse, but I did come across an analyst who said, and I'm just going to read one, one little quote. Those who argue for negotiations between Ukraine and Russia forget one simple thing. Under Putin, Russia has violated nearly every major treaty it signed. Its credibility as a treaty party or a party that signs treaty treaties is zero. Prove, prove otherwise if you can. And this guy, his name is uh, Vladimir Milov, actually wrote a long column in Prospect Magazine. I'll put the link in. If you want to go through the dirty details, it's there. It's in the public record. All of this stuff is. But I don't think people who are arguing for peace or thinking about this correctly. It's like taking the battered wife and making her go back into the same household with her kids, with the guy with three DUIs and two charged, you know, or two uh, convicted felonies of assault against a woman. Why would you put her back in that situation? You wouldn't. No, no judge in their right mind would do that. So why are we trying to tell Ukraine that gone through all this stuff that they have to have peace, that they have to not defend themselves and they have to listen to people in the West because we're a little unhappy that we're having to supply them and because we think we just want peace, give peace a chance. We want all this fighting to end. I want the fighting to end. Everyone wants the fighting to end, but sometimes you must meet force with force and that that's just the, that's just the way of the world. So not going to beat that dead horse too long. We hit it. Wanted to make sure y'all saw that in case you hear it from your friends or whatever. Just remind them of these 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 facts. Let's stay on Ukraine briefly for one more moment. And let's talk for a second about Ukraine is getting pushed back a little bit in the east. There's a couple of places, and you've probably heard of both of them. One of them is Bakhmut. That's been in the news a fair amount. Also, the city-slash-town of Solidaire. We've talked about that a couple of times. I think it was maybe two weeks ago was the first time. So the U Ukrainians continue to, so far at least, hold Bakhmut. Solidaire has mostly been taken by the Russians, depending on who you want to believe and how optimistic you want to be, at huge bloodshed. So why haven't the Ukrainians... Why are they allowing themselves to get pushed back a little bit, slash retrograde, slash kind of defend in what's like a defense in depth type situation? The reason is, is that I think the Ukrainians, they obviously have known these places are being attacked heavily. They could have rushed more reinforcements, but I think they're being very, very wise and that is, instead of putting fresh troops on the line in some of these areas and absolutely holding them by doing a defense in depth and moving back a bit, giving up some ground as you inflict heavy casualties on the enemy, they are keeping fresh troops in reserve so that they can actually do a hard counter punch. They don't want to get locked into, they being the Ukrainians, a bloody World War I type situation 
where you gain yards, I'm talking yards, by, you know, gallons of blood. That's not what they want. They don't want that kind of nasty fighting. They don't have the number of people. Ukraine is only a country of like 40 million people. They don't have enough people to go soldier for soldier with the Russians. The Russians can mobilize more. They can bring conscripts out by the hundreds of thousands. They're obviously threatening to do so, if not going to do so. And so Ukraine's being much smarter. And I think they're probably being advised in this regard if they weren't... Not that it's like some brilliant tactical thing. This is pretty basic military strategy, but I'm sure NATO and Western advisors are also telling them, resist the temptation to put troops on the line to hold that. Allow the, allow the Russians to take a little ground here or there. And what they're doing is, I think it was two or three weeks ago we reported it. If I didn't report it, I apologize. It was probably one of the things that got cut on the production floor, but I did record a part where... We're training at least one battalion in Europe, the U.S. Army is, in maneuver warfare, and now many European countries are also doing that, where you're getting larger units, a a battalion's about a thousand troops, and it's hard to get them, you know, for, usually a battalion's got about four companies in it, and it's hard to get units that large to maneuver and work together. And so I think the Ukrainians, especially now with this announcement about all the tanks, I think they're trying to keep troops in reserve that are fresh so that they can do a hard counterpunch. That way these troops aren't exhausted, they're not freezing, they're not going through all the horrible things that happens when you're on a front line. And so while you may see in the news that Ukraine's losing a little ground in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass region, I believe that they are doing it for strategic and very wise purposes and I think you'll see that come March, March, April-ish, as the horrible winter ends. If not before then, there might even be a counterpunch before then. What we'll to see. But the tanks are going to take a little time to get there. But I think the Ukrainians are being very wise if they're holding a force back. And I think they are. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. But you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are, are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or you can sign up to support at Patreon. Again, that's Patreon. Or you can also find me on Venmo at author Stan R. Mitchell. Again, that's author Stan R. Mitchell. And I have links to both of those in the source notes or on my Substack page, which again is stanormitchell.substack.com. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month, and you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue, and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, it'll have I'll have more time to cover the news, even more in-depth. 
and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do. So, of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend. You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here. You don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up, come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week. So thanks so much for your support. And with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. Let's move to China now, away from the Ukraine-Russia situation. We talk about China, I feel like, almost every week because what China decides to do or not do is going to affect a lot of people in this world, and it's certainly going to affect a lot of people in the United States and a lot of people who are living in our allied countries in Japan, Taiwan, and other places. So... What is the story I would like to discuss? Well, I came across a great uh, short little story, actually, in foreign policy. And it talked about how China, their aggressive actions have literally led India, a majority of the folks who live in India, the people, in a survey to say that China is the greatest threat that India faces. Now, that's huge because 43% in this morning consult poll said China is the greatest threat, and only 13% cited Pakistan, which is, of course, India's long-standing rival. They have fought, and I wanted to look up just how many times has India and Pakistan fought, because I knew that there's constant friction in the area of Kashmir, which is a disputed region that the... I don't even have time to get into all of that, but I happened to look it up. And I was actually stunned. There have been more wars than I even thought. I'll just name the wars. I won't even go into the casualties or why. There was the Indo-Pakistani War of 1947. There was the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. The Indo-Pakistani War of 1971. The Indo-Pakistani War of 1999. And then, of course, there's been all kinds of insurgencies and operations happen because of the Kashmir region, which in itself would take probably multiple podcasts to try to explain it all, the casualties and everything that's gone on there. Just Google it if you get bored. Indo-Pakistani war, you can read at length. So these are historic, long-term rivals going back to at least 1940 or so. They don't like each other. They have hated each other for decades. They have shed blood against each other. There are sons and grandsons who have lost fathers and grandfathers to each other. Their women don't like their, you know, the men on the other side. They've lost sons and, you know, brothers. And the the animosity between those two countries has been simmering for a long time. And yet, and yet China has been so aggressive of late that... 
the majority of the folks who live in India, which is, you know, quite frankly, not the most um, rich country in the world. There's not, you know, a ton of, you know, there, there are unfortunately a lot of people that live in India are impoverished and they don't get a lot of news. Let's just say that. And even despite all that, they're aware enough to know that China is being aggressive toward other countries and that China shares a very long border with India and that China is a potential threat. In fact, there have been some things that have kind of propped up between um, China and India. I'll probably, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into that in this episode, but I did want to say the reason I bring this up is I think, I don't know, the world has just changed in many ways. And we've seen it in Ukraine, in this just overwhelming, almost world response to what Russia has done. Russia has invaded other countries in the past. We've talked about Georgia, uh, Georgia, Chechnya. We can make a list of them. But for whatever reason, the world, which obviously, as a, as a general rule, most people want peace, the world has just started realizing that you just can't let these countries fight each other, invade each other, etc., because it's going to spread, more people get involved, etc., and it's just best to draw a line and say, no, nah, that's that's not what you know countries in today's world are allowed to do anymore. And so the world has rallied to help Ukraine defend itself, and it increasingly looks like that the world is rallying ahead of time to tell China, no, we're, we are not going to allow you to invade Taiwan. Just not going to let it happen. And countries such as Japan, we talked about that a week or two ago, and then also at the beginning of the year, how they're ramping up their defense budget. And they haven't quite come out and said that if you attack Taiwan, we will defend it, but they're basically saying it. They're already moving. You know, we talked about they moved a couple of F-15s down for a training exercise. Uh, there's other countries in the area, Philippines, and we can just make a list of them. These countries are not going to allow a big bully to take down one of them. It's almost like countries have become like neighborhoods or, or, or almost just like the soul of humanity where people these days will not allow a, you know, a, a ruffian to assault a woman on a street and 30 guys just stand around and say, well, thank goodness that big guy over there is not messing with us or to beat up a little kid or to take a little kid or do any of those things. Countries, they, I, th I think we've just, as as a world, we've had enough history and people are increasingly, I think people just have greater humanity. I know there's all this bad news out there all the time about various things and there's threats and all, just all that. But I just think people are kinder today and they have a bigger heart than people used to have. And so when you see aggression happening and you do see it because there there's media everywhere. Media today is someone with a cell phone, and so someone shoots a cell phone in Ukraine, shoots you know a twenty second click on or clip on a cell phone, and it's on CNN within an hour. And that didn't used to happen. So you could ignore the newspapers in the past. You could ignore the radio, but it's just hard to ignore things these days. With social media, you're going to see that clip even if you don't watch CNN. It's going to be on your friend's Facebook page. It's going to be on Instagram. It's going to be on Twitter. It's going to be on wherever you're at, TikTok. It's hard to get away from it. And so people have big hearts. And I just wanted to share that story because to me, it just absolutely blew me away that India now sees China as the greatest threat or its people do, which means it's military and its leaders are going to increasingly see them that way. And so they too are going to start building up their military. 
They're going to start reorienting away from Pakistan and more toward China because they're not going to allow the aggression either. It's just kind of an interesting reminder that it's the old Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched. And I think the leader of China, uh, Xi Jinping, had these plans to you know, put his name in history and go down as some great whatever. And as he started moving toward that direction, he forgot that when you make a move, other people get to make a move too. And in this case, there are a lot of countries making moves. And I think, I'm hoping he still makes the right move as Western companies exit the Chinese economy and as Western countries begin to orient forces from around the world, from as far away as the UK to Canada to places that don't even have to do this, are going to say to China, you're not going to go take Taiwan. So, at least for me anyway, it's it's kind of an inspiring and beautiful sight. And no one likes war, but it's like sometimes the best way to prevent war is deterrence. And so, we're watching this happen on the global stage every single week. And it's it's kind of amazing to watch. All right, so let's move from China to Iran. I try to do a somewhat regular update about Iran. And as I always say, it's very difficult to get news out of Iran. Very difficult, which is why you don't see a lot of news about what is happening there and the revolution or whatever the right word is for what is happening there. However, having said that, Politico had an amazing article that I did want to share just a bit about. And the name of the article was The Women of Iran Are Not Backing Down. And I've got it linked in the source notes, but I thought I would start with just reading a couple of paragraphs toward the beginning of it. So if you'll bear with me, let me just read this. Protests are not a new phenomenon in Iran. They flared up over the years, over election fraud, economic woes, civil liberties. But this time is different. An unprecedented revolution led by women with support from men encompassing a wide variety of grievances, all laid out in the heart-wrenching Persian lyrics of a song that's called Beret, or Because Of. This song has become the anthem of the revolution, striking such a nerve around the world that backlash after the, and this is the activist's, and singer's arrest uh, led to his release. And then I'll continue reading. This is a spontaneous civil rights movement made up of people at their wits' end, unable to afford basic life necessities while forced to adhere to the oppressive rules of a religious autocracy that promised to take care of its people. And it says, What's more dangerous than a mob with nothing to lose? And it says, See the French Revolution. Obviously, the French Revolution was a bloody thing. I think most people are somewhat, at least remotely, familiar with that. And it's a long, it's a magazine piece, actually, so it's pretty long. And there you got a reporter who go in there, who goes into the country, and it's interesting. They talk about how, for the past 40-plus years, you know, the women are forced to cover their hair in in a hijab, and they can't have clothing that's too tight it has to be loose women aren't allowed to dance 
publicly. They can't ride motorcycles or drive them, at least. They can't travel without a parent or spouse approval. And so there's all these restrictions. And it talked about how the leaders who originally helped create and make this society of religious intolerance are completely out of touch with Generation Z. And it says Gen Z is the, these folks are the true leaders of the revolt. And as it says, you know, what started out as protest against having to wear clothing to cover your hair, the hijab, has turned into calls to like completely overthrow the government. And there have been schoolgirls that have, you know, spray painted or damaged photos of the supreme leader. And the article talks about how these girls, young women, college students, young girls, sometimes wives, they have the support of the men, mostly. And there's a quote about, just, they quoted one of the uh, folks there, and I'll just read it. The most unprecedented thing we're seeing is people are fighting back against security forces. Women are not just taking off their headscarves in protest, they're burning them. And young kids, young girls are protesting. Despite the brutal crackdown, they're showing no signs of slowing down. I think this is a historic moment. I truly believe this is the first female-led revolution of our time. And the journalist literally has a photo that someone sent him of what you know appears to be a mall, like a coffee shop. And there are these, you can see women in it with no headscarves. To- it looks like America, honestly. It's just like young girls at a at a a coffee shop or a small restaurant diner and they look to be 18 20 22 it's not like they're little girls they're young females and they're refusing to wear any type of scarves coverings or hijabs at all and what's interesting is that according to some people that they interview in this article some Folks speculate that Iran has two options. They can continue to brutally crack down on on their people, and doing so, that only compounds the anger and the frustration against the regime, and that's going to be a losing battle. Or they can try to abolish the morality police, give women freedom to not wear a hijab, and have some of the other uh, draconian rules that women don't want to have. And so those are basically the two options. And I know in some previous episodes, we've basically talked about that. I've said, look, they have two options. They can just absolutely crack down and slaughter dozens, if not hundreds of people that are protesting with, you know, gunfire, arrest more people, throw them in jail. And I think that was part of the initial plan where they can lighten up some on some of the restrictions. And they've kind of done both. The article does talk about, if you remember the... At one point, there was the threat to, I think it was to hang like 10,000 people or execute them. And then that made big news and the Iranian government walked away from that. So anyway, interesting times. It hasn't ended in Iran. We'll continue to keep you updated. And again, I always say, I say almost every time we talk about about Iran is I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I don't think any analyst is sure what's going to happen. And I don't think it's known what's going to happen. There's definitely just this... The revolution has not been put down. It's not an all-out revolution. It's just a lot of unhappy people who are defying the law, defying authority. And at some point, 
you know, if you go to read your high school government class books, like at some point, if a government cannot enforce its laws, cannot bend the will of the people to its rules, then at some point you don't really have a government, right? A government has to collect taxes. It has to be able to ensure law and order. And so Iran's in this weird state where it basically cannot ensure law and order. And so if you're in that state, then you're basically a country that's almost like Afghanistan or something where there are not, you know, in Afghanistan, they've got warlords or tribal elders who are very powerful. And then the federal government has to, at this point, it's the Taliban. But even when the U.S. was there, half the time, the federal government that was supported by the U.S. and NATO had to negotiate and basically bribe and get locals to support things with their hands held out, you know, asking. The federal government was just so weak that they had to ask for everything. And that's what I'm starting to it's starting to hit me that that feels like what it is in Iran right now, that they can't enforce the rules they want to enforce. And they also can't really give up ground because if they show too much weakness, they feel they may lose power. So that's my take on it. Love to hear yours if you got one. And let's move away from that to some really cool tech news that I wanted to cover. So we have covered a lot of news and I think it's time to move on to something pretty cool. So I wanted to, in tech news today, talk about a couple of things that affect modern warfare. As you all know, I kind of, I don't know if geek out is the right word, but I do sometimes really get into some of these things that will eventually affect modern warfare. And in today's um, edition, it involves drones, which I'm constantly intrigued by drones. So I think you'll find this super interesting, but I will say right off the get-go, Super short, both both parts, um, partly for time, partly because there's nothing super unique about these. It's just two things I came across, and I wanted to make sure you were aware of them. Let's go to item one. So item one is, I think if you're a long-term listener, and I believe it's been a month or two ago, maybe three months ago, but there was a situation happen in Ukraine where Russia's been using some of their kamikaze drones or what are called loitering munitions that, you know, they can stay in the air a long time. They're usually propeller-driven. They're not very fast. And they've been using these with fairly good, um, I don't know, results, I guess is the right word. They've taken out some tanks, some artillery, some various things. So these small drones, they're hard to shoot down. And the Ukrainians have been trying to figure out the best way to defend against these things because they're cheap to produce. So, you know, shooting multi-million dollar missiles at them is not a great long-term strategy. And I had mentioned a couple of months or so ago that out of pure coincidence, there was a Ukrainian tank, a Ukrainian tank parked in some woods. We went into some detail over it. I shared photos in the source notes. And two uh, loitering drones or kamikaze drones had found this target, probably using either thermal or visual cameras. And so they tried to attack it. And this tank had the netting above it, which every army uses. You just, anytime a tank is parked or a piece of artillery and it's not moving, you conceal it. Because if you can see it, you can kill it. If you can conceal it, you got a chance of, of, you know, surviving. And so this tank was parked under some trees, which is smart. That's what that's what good tankers do. And they'd also spread out this camo net over it, which they're pretty um, rigid 
very strong netting strings under it. Not quite wires, as I explained before. I've put one of these up before. They're a huge pain to put up. They take time. But it's pretty serious net. Like, you know, I'd go so far as to say you could probably put the net around an elephant or something and, and you know, you could almost capture an elephant with a thing. I wouldn't want to be wrapped up in one of them, that's for sure, and try to break out of it. So it's a pretty serious, thick um, strings or ropes that make these netting almost the size of, like, your pinky or so. Um, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but maybe the size of, like, a, um, a pencil or something. So this is a pretty serious rope and netting. And so these two loitering drones had tried to go through the trees, and they tried to go through the nets to hit this tank. And in both cases between hitting branches and the netting, they were stopped. And I said at the time, wow, this is huge. You know, maybe the Ukrainians will find a way to put netting around some of their tanks and all so that as they're fighting, they have better survivability because these drones are so slow that they can't, I mean, they're just like plastic drones. They're not super heavy. They don't have a large explosive shell. It's not like an artillery or missile flying in. It's just a slow-moving drone that's hard to shoot down. Shoot down. And I have a photo up of one of them again because in a second um, photographed incident, a loitering munition, this time there doesn't appear to be any trees above it. It failed to punch through the netting. And so it hit the netting, pulled the netting down. It's half wrapped in netting and it's sitting on top of the tank. But most importantly, it did not explode. Now, I wouldn't want to be the guy that has to from EOD go out there and deal with that loitering munition but it is at least the second confirmed incident of a net stopping loitering munitions so I thought that was super cool especially as we send all these new tanks there that it is possible to stop these loitering munitions by just putting a good solid net up above these tanks so that was item one Item 2 involves drones again, as I said. And Defense One, which is a defense-related website, um, talked about an army contract that was for $66 million to develop a weapon that can fry drone electronics in the air, which is kind of cool. So it kind of looks like a... I'm not even sure how I'd describe it, but almost like a giant speaker, like huge, size of a truck. Imagine a bed of a truck lifting up and aiming like this massive speaker out in the air. And so this, uh, I'll read a couple paragraphs from it, and then you can get in the weeds. I'll have it in the source notes if you want to go there. And the headline of the article is, Is this new microwave weapon the answer to Iranian drones? Here's the first and second paragraph. Russia's frequent... I'll try it again. Russia's frequent drone attacks on Ukraine mirror a challenge that is growing for the U.S. military in almost every operational environment. How do you defeat drone swarms without wasting expensive surface-to-air missiles? The U.S. Army is working with a California company to develop microwave weapons that can fry airborne electronics. On Monday, counter-drone company appear. Epirus, or Epirus, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, announced that they, had, that they had won a $66 million prototyping contract from the Army's Rapid Capabilities and Critical Technologies Office for its experimental Leonidas counter-drone microwave weapon. And then it talks about that um, they'll transition that into a, that it's a weapon of future program that's already had a successful demonstration of the pro- prototypes. So, 
pretty cool if this thing will work that it might stop a lot of these because as you know most drones are either controlled by a human as most of them you'll see in the ukraine like the quadcopters there's some human who see, can use the cameras to see what the drone sees and so a human's controlling it or like the loitering munitions are often controlled by humans, although they're increasingly some of the super smart ones will look for a threat. They'll fly to an area where no friendly troops are. And then if they see movement or the type of threat that's programmed in, they will go and attack it on their own. And that's where people talk about AI or uh, artificial intelligence, obviously. And the scary thing about those things is that you don't even need a human to control them. But then it's like, what if you can't control them? But ignoring those possible worst case situations, a weapon like this would work against something that was either already programmed and thought for itself, or it would work against something that a human's controlling. If it goes out there and this massive thing fires out whatever it fires out and fries the internals, then the weapon is useless. And you didn't expend ammunition. You didn't fire an expensive weapon. And then it's just a matter of how much power source does it need? How fast can it fire again? You know, those are the type of logistical things you got to figure out. But we've seen such an impact from drones and from loitering munitions on the battlefield that the reality is, is that if you're in any type of unit now, you have to find a way to defend against drones dropping grenades or loitering munitions um, doing kamikaze attacks, flying in with an explosive on the front of them, because that is the reality of warfare now. It, these are inexpensive weapons, and so you have to find a way to defend against them. And to me, this seems like a pretty cool uh, concept that probably would work. Let's hope anyway, right? Okay, guys, so we will move to the motivation and wisdom part. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it, it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree. And one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously. But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school, and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out, and certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or, or to where they probably wanted to get in life, because it's hard to be around people that don't believe, that suck the energy out of you, or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams... Having heroes that I looked up to, whether it was sports figures or past presidents or past military leaders, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days or just some type of leadership event or just some type of really on fire type event and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you and they're like, oh, that won't work or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams and I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. 
you know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing, and that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said, so that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. As I say every week, I'm just going to read these. You can follow them from the source notes if you want to find them and follow them individually, each of the accounts. So here we go. First one. Don't give up. The beginning is always the hardest. That is important to remember, is it not? Next one. Do the right thing, even when no one is watching. Next one. Work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. Next one. Your private hard work will turn into public success. That is a great one. Next one. Good things are going to happen. Have faith and be positive. Another good one. Next one. You can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. I love that one. And it's true, of course. Next one. People only bring up your past when they are intimidated by your present. Man, that is a great one to remember. Again, it's people only bring up your past when they are intimidated by your present. Next one. Bad news is you cannot make people like, love, understand, validate, accept, or be nice to you. Good news is it doesn't matter. It's a great one. Next one. Sometimes even to live is an act of courage. Another good one. Next one. Dear past, thank you for your lessons. Dear future, I'm ready. Dear God, thank you for another chance. It's another good one, isn't it? Next one. Kill them with success and bury them with a smile. It's a great one. Next one. Miserable people focus on what they hate about their life. Happy people focus on what they love about their life. That's a great one, too. Next one. Once you get your mindset right, the world will start cooperating. That's another good one. Next one. You've got to get up every morning with determination if you're going to go to bed with satisfaction. That's a great one, too. Next one. You learn a lot by being silent. Next one. Small people belittle others. Great people make others feel they too can become great. Man, that's a good one. Small people belittle other belittle others. Great people make others feel they too can become great. Next one. Work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. It's another good one. Next one. If you want something, work for it. Next one. Good things are going to happen. Have faith and be positive. Isn't it? There's just something about being positive, is there not? Next one. Success takes time, so don't give up. Ah, we all forget that. We all want uh, microwave solutions in a crock pot world. Do we not? Things take longer than you think they should. Next one. Results speak louder than words ever will. Man, that is just a great one. 
results speak louder than words ever will. It's like we live in a culture where we all try to be loud and the reality is is there's no need to be loud if you've done things, you know? <laughs> results speak louder than words ever will. I remember when I first started writing, just a quick note on that, where the big deal was if you were a writer or who were trying to write a book or almost done with a book or maybe you had written a book, you would always say, I am a writer or I am an author. And so the idea was eventually you want to get past the I am a writer to I am an author. And I remember when I'd written one or two books, I was so proud to tell people I am an author, which now I rarely even say. But uh, once you've written, once I uh, usually actually now underplay everything and say I'm a writer and people say, oh, have you got, are you working on a book or something? And then you just say, yeah, I've, I've written a, a few. And usually they'll say, oh, really? Like two or three or what? And you're like, uh, 11. And so that's usually just results speak louder than words ever will. So just keep working, keep doing it. We got to quit being loud and we got to actually do loud. Got to do, not talk. It's all about doing things. I always like to end with this one Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10-plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a 100 years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber and if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member. Do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. 
with that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. Can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out. And that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town. And he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action. A couple of cops die before the end of book one. And if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown. Book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Acuff, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking There's plenty of action in it as well, and it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from... On one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So, really, the book is, it's pretty deep. So, it it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish, and will they survive with their honor and dignity, and, you know, I've been told this, that Soldier On just truly defines what it means to be a soldier, to never give up. And then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan. It's called Hill 406. It's about a couple of Marines who couldn't be more different. They get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation. It's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. And then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention. Actually, it's a part biography, part self-help, all-inspiration type book about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents. What sets them apart? What qualities allowed them to reach their goals where others failed? How can you cultivate those qualities in yourself? And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking 
how he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge, like, two-to-one election defeat. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. It's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I've put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help. So I think you can learn a lot from presidents. I could go for own for, again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top. The How He Managed to the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book in my humble opinion. So that's called number 44. You can check that out as well. And I don't think I said this earlier, but you can find all of my books on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and just search for the name Stan R. Mitchell, and you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed and that's the best place to get them. And that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell. So way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.